right. Tell me when. Yes. All right. Nahum chapter 1 and 2 Kings chapter 18. Nahum. I didn't sneeze. Nahum. All right. The book of Nahum. The pages might be stuck together back there. <laughs> all right. Nahum chapter 1 and 2 Kings 18. 2 Kings 18. Nahum 1 and then 2 Kings 18. So we got Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So any day now, the book of Matthew will, will be there. And you'll be like, oh, I understand what's going on now. All right. <laughs> I know this story. But Nahum and the bloody city. All right. You see the vital statistics, three chapters, 47 verses, 1,285 words. Uh, The name Nahum actually means, and this is really important and we'll talk about it later, uh, it actually means comforter. And that's really uh, in consolation or consolation. And that's really ironic because Nahum is just screaming bloody murder the whole book. I mean, it is heavy, it is negative, it is destructive, it is just full of judgment, but his name means comfort. So we ha- we'll talk about what could be the significance of that later. He is a contemporary of Hezekiah and Isaiah. So he's, you know, he's dated around 740 to 700 B.C., somewhere in that window, 740 to 700 B.C. Uh, if, you read, um, if you read the first verse... It says in the latter half of the verse, it says, uh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkoshite. And there's a little bit of disagreement of where Elkosh is. Some suggest it's in Assyria, uh, near Nineveh, which has some credence to it. And some think it's in Galilee. So when you figure it out, let me know. But there's just there's two schools of thought as to where Elkosh was. But the, the consensus is that he probably, meaning Nahum, he probably escaped the northern tribes when, when Sennacherib and Assyria came in in 721 BC to kind of like carry them into captivity. He probably escaped the Assyrian invasion of those 10 tribes and fled into the southern kingdom of Judah. That's what people think of Nahum. And he's probably watched Sennacherib persecute Jerusalem. Because if you remember in 2 Kings 18 and 19, Sennacherib sends his messenger Rabshakeh and he begins to taunt and challenge the God of Israel and threaten Jerusalem. And God answers him with that destruction of the 185,000 in one night. And it looks like Nahum is witness to this because he was probably in Judah at the time. Um, The theme of the book is in the first verse, the first phrase, the burden of Nineveh, okay? Uh, This is a book that is all about the destruction of Nineveh, the awful doom of the apostate. So it's written about 150 years after another preacher went to Nineveh, and do we know who that is, class? Jonah, very good. You get a gold star. Don't take them off the teacher's desk. They'll get mad at us. But um, Jonah preached to Nineveh about 150 years prior. And what happened, that revival, obviously there was a revival, right? The people repented. The king repented. They put on sackcloth and ashes. Even the animals were were girded about with sackcloth and ashes. But that revival fire went out. There's a lesson in there. That revival fire went out. That repentance did not last. And when we pick it up in the book of Nahum, they're not just backsliders. They are apostate. 
They are hardened against God now. And if you're looking for a definition of an apostate, an apostate is one who has forsaken his former profession. One who's abandoned his former position. A defector, a a deserter, a traitor. That's who we're talking about here, traitors. These people are just so far from where they were after Jonah's preaching. Now look at 2 Kings chapter 18. Let's look at what's going on here. Let me show you the state of the Assyrians. All right? 2 Kings 18. Look at verse 25. 2 Kings 18, 25. The Bible says, and this is Rabshakeh now, right? Now he's, he's taunting the children of Judah. He's taunting Hezekiah and his men. And he says, am I now come up without the Lord against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. So there he is. The Assyrians are now mocking and challenging Jehovah God. Again, they're not just like, oh, I quit church. Now they're hardened against God. They're antagonistic towards God. And isn't that how people get? You know, the backslider in heart shall be filled with his own ways. And a lot of times people don't just backslide because the word backslider isn't really necessarily a real biblical thing. It's called backsliding. And you just keep sliding so far sometimes where you don't just uh, walk in the counsel of the ungodly. You start sitting in the seat of the scornful and you start mocking the things of God. And here they are now mocking the things of God. When Jonah preached, they repented in sackcloth and ashes, and now they're mocking God. Verse 30, Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us, and this city shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. Verse 35, Who are they among all the gods of the countries that have delivered their country out of mine hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of mine hand? I mean, this is a direct affront to Jehovah God. I mean, they have come so far from Jonah's preaching. But if you look at chapter 19, verse 22, you will see that God was more than up for the challenge. And God sends a message, an answer through Isaiah. And it says, uh, and this is what God says to Sennacherib and Rabshakeh and the Assyrians, who were the Ninevites, right? Nineveh was a major city in Assyria. Um, Whom hast thou reproached and blasphemed? And against whom hast thou lift, exalted thy voice and lifted up thine eyes on high? Even against the Holy One of Israel. By thy messengers thou hast reproached the Lord and hast said, With the multitude of my chariots I am come up to the height of the mountains, to the sides of Lebanon, and will cut down the tall cedar trees thereof and the choice fir trees thereof, and I will enter into the lodgings of his borders and into the forest of his carmel. And look what God does down in verse 35. And it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians an hundred, fourscore, and five thousand. That's 185,000. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. So it looks like Nahum was given a vision to record the destruction of this wicked nation. He watched this wicked nation get their lumps, and he's recording some of it in the book of Nahum. Key words, revenge, vengeance. Key phrase, utter end. That's important. That's, you turn back to Nahum chapter 1. Um, and then key verse. Let's read Nahum 3, 5 to 7. Let's read those verses. Those are some key verses in the book. Nahum 3, 5 to 7. Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will discover thy skirts upon thy face. 
and I will show the nations thy nakedness and the kingdoms thy shame. And I will cast abominable filth upon thee and make thee vile and will set thee as a gazing stock. And it shall come to pass that all they that look upon thee shall flee from thee and say, Nineveh is laid waste. Who will bemoan her? When shall I seek comforters for thee? I mean, so that is, wow. I mean, you may not see that in your devotional book tomorrow. And that is God just saying, I am going to pile drive you, right? You've thumbed your fist at me, and now you're going to get it. Thankfully, God is merciful, but when the judgment falls, it falls very harshly, as you see in the book of Nahum. And Jesus Christ is pictured as the consolation of Israel. Because in all this judgment falling on the Gentiles and falling on the Ninevites, there's a comfort and a hope for God's people. And Jesus Christ is actually called the consolation of Israel in the book of Luke, right? I think it's Simeon who is waiting for the consolation of Israel. So Jesus Christ is that comfort even in the midst of judgment. And that's how he's pictured in the, in the book of Nahum. So let's do the breakdown. I want, I want to go to Nahum chapter 1. Uh, you see on your book, on your page there perhaps, or if you're watching online, you can look in the comment section. Um, you can see chapter 1 is God's judgment declared. Right? And really what we focus in on chapter 1 is, who is judging? It's really about who is judging. The character of God. Who is judging? Let's see some things about God, who's going to be the judge. Verse 2, God is jealous. All right? He wants your love, He wants your attention. He says, I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. He said that way back in the law. Aren't you jealous of the people you love? The people you care about, the people you, you know, have invested in, God is jealous. He's jealous over you. He's jealous over His church. He's jealous over His Bible. He's jealous over the things of God. Those are His things. He loves them like He loves you. Verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. I'm thankful that even though He is righteous, He doesn't whack us every second. We deserve a whacking. I mean, the Ninevites needed their heads busted probably decades before, and God is long-suffering, slow to anger. And verse number 7, the Lord is good. Amen? So there's some things about who is judging. He's a jealous God. He wants your affection. He wants your attention. He wants to be first. He's slow to anger because we fail Him every second of every day, but He's merciful and gracious. And he's good. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. Uh, chapter 2 is God's judgment now described. It's not the how or the who is judging. It's the how, rather, God is judging. So chapter 1 is the character of God, but chapter 2 is the conduct of God. Chapter 1 is, okay, who is this God that is going to levy this judgment against Nineveh? What is he like? And chapter 2 is, okay, how is he going to do it? What is God actually going to do to these Ninevites? And if you look at chapter 2, you see some things. Look at 2.13. Let's just look at that one verse. He says, Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will burn her chariots in the smoke. Now, if you look across at 2.4, it says of the Ninevites that the chariots shall rage in the streets. They shall jostle one against another in the broadways. They shall seem like torches. They shall run like the lightnings. We'll talk about what that might be later. But he's going to torch their torches. He said, I'm going to take your chariots that are on fire and they're burning and they seem so powerful and I'm going to burn them up. Look at verse number, keep reading. And the sword shall devour thy young lions. 
He's going to let the sword devour the devourers. Your young lions that devour the prey, my sword is going to devour them. You see how God is, they're reaping what they've sown. I'm going to burn your chariots that are burning like fire. I'm going to devour your devourers. Keep reading. He says, I'm going to cut off thy prey from the earth. I'm going to seize upon the prey that you've been seizing upon. Those peoples, those nations, those groups, those entities, those whatevers that you've been, you know, seizing upon and preying upon, I'm going to get them now. You've got nothing to pray upon. P-R-E-Y, not P-R-A-Y. And uh, the last thing he says, and I will cut, uh, and the voice of thy messengers shall no more be heard. He's going to stop their mouths. Those are the same mouths that taunted God and his people through Rabshak and others. He says, you guys want to keep coming here and mocking? I'm going to stop that mouth. I'm going to shut that mouth. God says in the book of Romans, behold the goodness and the severity of God. We love God's goodness. Hallelujah. But there is a severity. And I don't want to trifle with it. Because when God says the severity is time to kick in, it's cause to make your knees knock and your spine to like just like shiver. You ask them, you know, you take, and I, and I don't mean this in any wrong way, but you take that nation said, his blood be upon us and upon our children. You think the folks in Treblinka and Auschwitz would like to take those words back? I mean, when that severity comes, it's scary stuff, man. When you keep thumbing your nose at God and thumbing your nose at God and thumbing your nose at God, and that's what this book is about. We'll get to it in a little bit. There'll be some preaching mixed in here. When you get to the place where you become apostate, where you fall so far from your position that you once held to, and you just so, God's just, when that hammer falls, it's scary, man. Jesus said, uh, what did he say? On, if you fall on this stone, you'll be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it'll grind him to powder. And that's about the first coming and the second coming, right? If that first coming, if you fall on that stumbling stone and you're broken and you receive Christ and you have that contrite heart, he'll put you back together again. But when he comes again, that's what this book points to. When he comes again, when that stone that's cut out without hands out of that mountain in Daniel chapter 2, when that stone comes down... He's coming down and he's cracking things like the summer threshing floor. He's just smashing that weed up and he's just grinding them all to powder. So you want to be on the right side of God all the time, right? Chastening is one thing. The chastening hand of God is one thing. And that could be tough to get that spanking. Even the purging. John 15, he says, even the, even the leaves that are bringing forth fruit, he taketh away, then he bring forth more fruit. The purging is difficult sometimes. To have things cut out of your life, that's painful and difficult. But that's nothing compared to the severity of God. Ask Israel. Set aside. And all the things that little nation faced because they rejected God, said his blood be upon us and upon our children. Behold the goodness, therefore, and the severity of God. On thee, goodness, Gentiles, but on them, severity. So keep that in mind. And then chapter 3, is it says on your paper, God's judgment uh, deserved, but this is the why is God judging. This is the case of God. This is God giving you his rationale, his why, that this tremendous judgment and burden was going to have to fall on Nineveh. 
Um, and if you look at chapter 3, verse 1, here's some reasons why. Nineveh is called here the bloody city. Murder, death, destruction, robbery, full of lies. A horrible city. Verse number 4, if you look at it, the city was full of whoredoms and witchcrafts that were seducing other nations. Right? And number 16, verse 16, Thou hast multiplied thy merchants above the stars of heaven. Nineveh was proud. Sounds a lot like Lucifer, right? I'll exalt my throne above the stars of heaven, right? I'll be like the Most High. So, and there's some typology there we'll get to when we talk about that, that second coming. But God's judgment was deserved. God doesn't make mistakes. God doesn't drop the hammer on someone because he's fickle or SAT word, Aaron, capricious, right? He just decided, hey, I'm just going to, you know, drop the hammer. You getting that one, Adriana? All right, capricious. It means just like fickle, right? It means just like, you know, I just feel like whacking these people. No, he was stored up, and it was years and years and years in the making till finally God said, I- I've had enough, and then, you know, it comes down. And when it comes down, it comes down heavy. Uh, so let's look at some Bible pictures. If you go back to chapter 1. And the way I want to do the Bible pictures here is I really want to talk about the three readings of, of, of the book. Let's talk about it historically. Let's talk about it doctrinally. Let's talk about it inspirationally and what those three different... Because right, every verse of the Bible can be read historically. It happened at a certain time and place to a certain people. It can be taken doctrinally. Like, what does this say about God and prophecy and the future events? And what does it say inspirationally or spiritually for us sitting here today in the body of Christ? Because we're not Jews in the Old Testament worried about Assyrians, uh, though you never know. Uh, but uh, we are Christians in the body of Christ, but there's some lessons to take away from it. So let's, let's start historically, okay? Historically, what is happening? The Lord is judging Nineveh for her threats against Judah under Hezekiah. That's the historical reading, Right? Uh, Assyria is a little bit full of themselves. They've carried away the 10 northern tribes. 721 BC, Sennacherib came in, took the 10 northern tribes into captivity. So now he thinks, oh, let me take a shot at those two southern tribes. If I took the 10, I could surely take the two. And he sends those mockers and those messengers to Jerusalem. And if you look at 1 2, it says, God is jealous and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The revenge the Lord would take for threats from Rabshakeh. There, if you put it in context, now it makes sense, right? Imagine Rabshakeh taunting at the walls of Jerusalem, taunting the God of Israel, and Nahum is there recording this vision, and God is telling him, I'm going to get my revenge on you. I'm going to get my revenge on you. Just wait for it. It's coming. And that's the context of what's going on here. Uh, verse 8 and 9. Nineveh is condemned to extinction. See what he says in 8 and 9? But with an overrunning flood, he will make an utter end of the place thereof, and darkness shall pursue his enemies. What do you imagine against the Lord? He will make an utter end. Affliction shall not rise up the second time. God has so had it with the Ninevites that he says, I'm going to wipe you off the face of the earth. And um, you don't really know about Nineveh today. (laughs) Not much of a capital today. I don't know anything about Nineveh today. It's basically was obliterated back then. Verse 10. For while they be folded together as thorns, and while they are drunken 
as drunkards. They shall be devoured as stubble, fully dry. Now, we could talk about all the spiritual applications and doctrinal connections, but what is he saying right there? That Nineveh is going to be captured while her defenders are drunk. You guys are so drunk on your power and so drunk on your bottle and so drunk on whatever you're drunk on, I'm going to get you while you're drunk. Doesn't it say in First Thessalonians, they that be drunken are drunken in the night? God used that to describe the enemies. Listen, let me just climb up on the soapbox. Nothing good comes of that drinking. Nothing good comes of it. I know you think you have a little bit for your stomach. You told yourself that. But you know what? Nothing good comes of it. Here's an example of these guys. He said, I'm going to take you in your drunkenness. I'm going to take you while you're high on your stuff and full of your stuff and full of yourself. I'm going to get you. And it's just a great reminder that nothing good ever happens Nothing good happens when you get behind a wheel. Nothing good happens when you, when you go upstairs. Nothing good happens while you're on that bottle. Nothing good happens. And we could spiritualize it. We could try to make applications to it. But when he says drunken as drunkards, those guys were probably soldiers hitting the bottle outside the camp. And he says, well, those guys are supposed to be watching your city or boozing it up. I'm going to take them in their drunkenness. And that's a great reminder not to let that ever be said of us. Verse 14, and the Lord hath given a commandment concerning thee, now watch this, that no more of thy name be sown. Out of the house of thy gods will I cut off the graven image and the molten image. I will make thy grave, for thou art vile. Nineveh, the name of Nineveh, would be blotted out. So I'm going to blot out your name because you disgust me. I told you it was a rough book, guys. I mean, it is just, it is bloody murder from the first verse to the last verse. It is just, probably why not too many entries in the morning and evening uh, based on the book of Nahum, I think. I'm sure there's one in there because Spurgeon could wax poetic about pretty much anything, but uh, it's just a tough book. 15, now watch this. Behold upon the mountains, the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, O Judah, Keep thy solemn feasts, perform thy vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. Please notice there is a warning to God's people after declaring judgment upon the wicked. Isn't that interesting? God says, I'm going to wipe them out. You guys keep your feasts. You guys keep your vows because the wicked's going to be cut off. You know what? When we see the judgment of God upon the wicked, you know what the Bible says we should do? What manner of persons ought you to be in all, in all godliness and honesty? Seeing that the heavens will be dissolved. Right? When we see the fact that God's going to levy a judgment like this, you know what it should make you do? Not take sin so lightly. Not take the book so lightly. Not take prayer so lightly. Not trust in your own selves. Not get drunk on the drink of your own stupor because that could be us. And but for the grace of God, it's not us. So he tells Jerusalem, he tells Judah, hey, I'm coming down to whack those people. Don't you backslide. Don't you become apostate. Don't you lose your zeal or dip your colors. I'm going to cut off the wicked. That should make you be excited and propel you on to serve me even more. I was sitting in Adriana's basketball practice yesterday. And I confess I had my laptop and I was studying this a little bit. You know what like washed over me? And it washes over you all the time, I know, but just I had a spiritual blip on my radar. 
all these people around are going to face this judgment. Like all these people around are going to face this judgment. Like they're going to face the wrath of God if they're not saved. Like it, that should propel you to want to be more zealous, to want to be closer to the Lord, to want to be more committed because that hammer is about to swing. Those, those feet are coming down the mountains. That's Jesus Christ. He's going to come down those mountains. He's going to levy that sledgehammer and you're going to be behind him. Now, if you're in front of him, you're going to get hit. But if you're behind him, you're going to be watching it all. You want to do your best now to save as many as you can and be a burning and shining light. So that's, um, that's the historical look. Let's do the doctrinal look. Nahum 1. Now, doctrinally, we're all second coming. right? Doctrinally, we saw historically, that's God judging Assyria, Nineveh. Uh, historically. Doctrinally, there's some great things about the second coming here. Right, because the second coming, the day of the Lord, is a day of wrath. It's a day of judgment. It's a day of 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 just the hammer getting swung. Let's look at some things here. Let's look at some things. Verse three. Right. The Lord is slow to anger, amen, and great in power, amen, and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord. Now watch this hath his way in the whirlwind. You're going to want to underline that word whirlwind. And in the storm, you're going to want to make note of the word storm. And the clouds, you're going to want to notice that. The clouds are the dust of his feet. Right? The whirlwind, the storm, that's all second coming. Because the Lord comes back with a whirlwind. He comes back, actually it says, walking upon the wings of the wind. The Bible says in Revelation 1, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall behold him. So whenever you get in your Bible, you start to see the whirlwind, like Job, right? We did this a few months ago. I don't know when we did it. But Job, at the end of Job, Job's a picture of the tribulation, right? 42 chapters, 42 months. You get to the end of the book of Job. What happens in Job, I think, 38? Somebody shows up in a whirlwind. God shows up in a whirlwind. Why? Because at the end of the tribulation, he shows up in a whirlwind. It's like a storm. It's like a tempest it's described as. And there it is in Nahum chapter 1. The Lord hath his way in the storm. How about verse 5? The mountains quake at him, and the hills melt. And the earth is burned at his presence, yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Mountains quaking, hills melting, the earth burning at his presence. That's all second coming. You could run your own cross-references. Right? Psalm 97.5, the hills melted like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. Hebrews 12, Haggai 2, talks about the shaking that's going to happen when he comes. When that, I mean... When thunder peals, doesn't it shake a little bit? It'll shake, you know, if it's really close to your house, it'll shake the windows. You know, it'll shake things, that power. When Jesus Christ roars, when that lion of the tribe of Judah roars from heaven, he's going to shake some things. He's not just, I'm not just going to shake your heart up. Shake. He's going to literally shake the cosmos up. He's going to shake the mountains up. The rocks are going to be tumbling down. It's wild. I didn't say it was going to get a lot of amens, but it's wild. It's a lot of wild stuff. Verse 6. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks 
are thrown down by him. There's some people not being able to stand before his wrath. Rocks being thrown down. Revelation 6, the Bible says, the great day of his wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? Right When that fury comes, it's, you can't stand before it. They're going to be begging the mountains to fall on them in Revelation 6. Can you imagine that? They're going to be so afraid of the face of him because he's not coming back as Jesus, sweet Jesus, my Savior, my friend. He's coming back as judge, warrior, king, lion, not lamb. When he came as a lamb, he was meek and he was humble and he was lowly. If you saw a lamb walk in the back door, we'd all say, oh, I saw that guy at Homedale Park, yeah. If you saw a lion walk in the back door, you'd lose your, the joints of your body would be loosed and you'd run out the door, right? And they're seeing the lion of the tribe of Judah coming back in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7, who can stand before his indignation, right? Keep going, verse 7. The Lord is good a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. The day of trouble. The tribulation is called the time of trouble. Jacob's trouble, Jeremiah chapter 30 says. Verse 8, there's an overrunning flood. There is a flood in the great tribulation. Revelation 12 talks about the serpent casting a flood out of his mouth to pursue the woman and the earth opening up to kind of swallow it up. So there's going to be some kind of a flood in the tribulation. Didn't God say of uh, Behemoth, he could drink up a river and take the Jordan up in his mouth? Mm, When you figure that out, let me know, okay? But somehow the serpent's going to cast a flood out of his mouth in the, book, in the book of Revelation. And this says there's an overrunning flood that's going to overtake some people. Interesting correlations. How about 15? 15. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him, not them, of him, that's Jesus Christ, that bringeth good tidings. We, this verse is quoted in the New Testament to talk about us bringing the gospel to the world. But in its immediate application here is talking about Jesus Christ coming from the mountains. He literally comes from the mountains, skipping upon the mountains. Psalm 121, I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. He's actually coming down like a row upon the mountains. Song of Solomon talks about him like a row upon the mountains, making haste and coming down and descending to destroy the enemies. In the Bible, a startling book. All these little connective fibers, all these little connective tissues. How about chapter 2, verse 4? If we're taking this reading that it's connected to the second coming, right? If this is, if this is somehow similar to the second coming, if this is a picture of the second coming, it says, The chariots shall rage in the streets. They shall jostle one another against another in the broadways. They shall seem like torches. They shall run like the lightnings. That sounds like an automobile to me. Right? It's going to seem like a torch. It's going to run like lightning. Haven't you ever heard of a combustion engine? You say, but it's called a chariot. Well, doesn't your under your hood, don't they measure everything in terms of horsepower? Right? Just very interesting that at the time of a book that has a, a, an application to the second coming of Christ, this. God describing something that seems like a car. Because when he comes back, there's going to be cars like there are cars now. Back then, I don't know what a chariot was that seemed like a torch, that ran like lightning, but I know if you don't have a battery in your car, 
you're pretty shot. <laughs> you're stuck. 3-1. Um, 3-1. Um, Woe to the bloody city. It is all full of lies and robbery. The prey departeth not. God is judging a great city like Christ judges a great city in Revelation 18. Right? God in the end of tribulation judges the Antichrist city. He judges the great city of Babylon. And here he's judging a great city also. So again, and I could point out more, but these are just little connections and correlations between the second coming of Christ and what's happening in the book of Nahum. And then finally, and here's the one that's going to hurt the most. Uh, go to 2 Peter chapter 2. Spiritually, right? Spiritually, Nineveh's doom points to God's judgment uh, on a rebellious Christian. 2 Peter 2. Can I say that again? Nineveh's doom points to God's judgment on a rebellious Christian. Dare I say an apostate believer, right? And if you're sitting here today, I know I'm preaching to the choir here today. But if you're watching from home, that's good. But if somehow this message gets to somebody that should be in church and should be following God and not, here it is. Here's God's estimation of you. Here's what God thinks of where you're headed. Right? Now, let's, let me just paint the picture here and draw the, draw the parallels. The people of Nineveh had been given God's word by Jonah, correct? Okay. They knew better, correct? Okay. We have been given the word of God, correct? Amen. We know better, correct? Amen. Right, we know better. Nineveh repented at first, but wound up worse than she was before. Will we agree on that? Amen. How often do we fail to follow what we know and end up worse than we were before? Amen. They knew, they did good at the beginning. They dipped the colors, they threw it overboard, they got hard against God, they stopped walking in the counsel of God, they started walking in the counsel of the ungodly, they stood in the way of sinners, they sat in the seat of the scornful, and their judgment came. We know the book, have the book, read the book, have heard the book, could quote the book, and sometimes something will happen in our life, and we'll do a little repentance to try to get things right, maybe, sort of, I don't know, but then... Things just cool off. Things just recede. We just think, oh, I'm just going to do whatever I want to do anyway. And God says, there's your prognosis. <laughs> there's what God thinks of you. There's where God says you're headed. Right? Look at 2 Peter 2.20. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, have you escaped? Have you escaped the slime, the sludge? Hallelujah, I've escaped. If you're washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, you've escaped the pollutions of the world. Amen. We'll spiritualize this verse a little bit, right? They are again entangled therein. That means if you got untangled, you just tangled yourself back up. You jumped back into the pig pen. You went back into the slime. You went back into the muck and mire. You're like the dog returning to the vomit. That's the next verse or so. It says... If that's you and you're overcome, because we all struggle, amen? amen. <laughs> Good preaching, Pat. Yeah, we all struggle. Amen. We all fight, but the thing is, keep struggling. Amen. 
Keep fighting. Say, I'm struggling with sin. Keep struggling. I'm struggling with doubt. Keep struggling. I'm struggling with my faith. Well, keep struggling. Just keep the trajectory and your nose pointed toward the horizon. Right? Don't quit. Right? Continue thou. Right? That's the big idea. Continue thou. The more I'm looking at this thing and thinking about what Paul wrote to Timothy, it's all about not quitting. It's all about not quitting. I'm working on a message for some for future youth camp called O Timothy. I'm thinking about the things that Paul told Timothy. It's interesting. Um, it's a good study. Uh, but he says, if you're entangled and overcome, I'm just going to read the verse, shall we? I'm just going to read it. Amen. The latter end is worse with them than the I wanted to read it slow, Brian, just in case I missed any words. Uh, no, right? I know. Me and Andrew read this earlier today. Yes, amen. The, I'm going to read it again because I'm, I'm, I'm in the slow class. The latter end, okay, got that, is worse, got that, with them, got that, than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb. The dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the soul that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. You know what an unsaved man is described as? He's called a dog. You know what an unsaved woman is called? She's called a pig, a sow. There is a man and a woman there that have gone back to their junk, that have gone back to the pig pen, literally, that have gone back to the vomit, literally, and like Nineveh, will obey in the beginning, like they repented of Jonah, right? They were good for maybe a few years. But when God's judgment doesn't fall, we become hard against God. We exploit His mercy. We trample underfoot His mercy. Right? The Bible says, because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Because God doesn't whack every sodomite. Because God doesn't whack every murderer. Because God doesn't whack every Christian who steps out on him. Because God doesn't vaporize you. You think that God is smiling on you still. And we foolishly think in the error of our hearts that God is okay with what we're doing. Nothing could be further from the truth. It is just that mercy of God that we exploit. We take advantage of God's mercy. You know what happens? We get hard and we end up like the Ninevites so full of our own ideas that we're not just out of church, out of fellowship, away from God. We're now hardened against the things of God and any preacher that tries to tell us, we're going to tell them. Because I did that church thing and I tried that Bible and I read those verses and yada, yada, yada. God says, you are on dangerous, dangerous ground. It's okay to mess up. We're all going to mess up. But when you mess up, own the mess up. Right? That's repentance. Own the sin. Own the mistake. Stop deflecting the fault. Stop putting it on somebody else. Be like David. I have sinned. Psalm 51. Right? I have sinned. And Lord, you know, you're clear when you judge. Right? But we get like this. We don't see the hammer fall because God's merciful and slow to anger and gracious. And that makes us hard. That makes us think, okay, I could just go a little further. I could just go a little further down the road. I could just keep taking advantage of this because, you know, God's not doing anything. And then, my friend, when it comes, it comes like a whirlwind. And he won't just turn your frown upside down. He turn your whole world upside down. 
he took Nebuchadnezzar's mind for seven years because he thought, look what I did. And Nebuchadnezzar was warned. Nebuchadnezzar, hey, Nebi, don't get full of yourself. And when he did, he said, the kingdom is departed. And he was like a beast for seven years with nails like, you know, like claws and hair like feathers. He was an animal almost. And then God restored him. But my goodness, I think there might have been some scars in that time. When we abandon our profession, we are tempting God to judge us. We're like, you know, it's, it's really like, we're like, come on, God, give me your best shot. Now, you would never say that. None of you have the guts, and I don't either, to actually say that, but that's what our actions are saying. When we do, when we, uh, when we go apostate, apostate means you abandon your former profession. It doesn't mean you just decide that Jesus is Michael the archangel. We think the Jehovah's Witnesses are apostate. The Mormons are apostate. Apostate means, no, you've abandoned your former position. I once thought this about God, and now I don't think that so much anymore. That's apostasy. That's a falling away. And when that's you, you're like saying, come on, God, take your best shot. And that's a scary place to be. The Bible says, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. I don't want to tempt him. I'm an idiot enough trying to do the best I can. I don't want to start thumbing my nose at him and just kind of, you know, looking at him and just saying, well, I'm just going to do what I want to do anyway. The Bible says, seest thou a man wise in his own conceit? There's more hope of a fool than of him. At least the fool that said in his heart there is no God. But somebody that thinks they know better and is going to do what they're going to do anyway, come on, God, right there. Let me see. Give me your best shot. You don't want his right cross. You don't want his left hook. Because they knock you, knock you into the grave. Knock you sideways. So, spiritually, that's a great lesson. When we don't want to follow the mission, we don't want to stay with the stuff, we risk becoming like those Ninevites. Now, if that wasn't enough for you, let me give you two big ideas from the book of Nahum. All right, going back to Nahum. Um, is that okay? I was, I'm not mad at anybody. I'm not mad at anybody. I'm not mad at anybody, but I'm mad at me. And I look at the clock, and I don't mean the clock over there. I mean just the clock of God's calendar. It's short. The time is short. Like, we need more prayer we need more Bible. We need more devotion. We need more love on each other. We need Amen. more consecration. We need more about Jesus because Amen. He's coming Amen. and the judgment is coming. And, and that should provoke us to love and good works. Um, so here's, here's a big idea. We're in Nahum 1. That even in the midst of doom, the Lord sends a message of comfort. That's the first big idea. Even in the midst of doom and destruction, the Lord wants to send you comfort. Nahum's message, what he preached, was destruction. He cried bloody murder, like I said, but his name means comfort. His name means consolation. So for the harassed and fearful people that were subject to cruel powers like Assyria, you know what God says? I'm going to send you some comfort. Even though I'm pronouncing judgment and destruction upon them, I'm going to send you someone who is comfort to you. And what does the Bible say about God? Oh, look at Nahum 1.7. Look at this. In the midst of all this destruction, think about how consoling these verses are in the midst of all the affliction God's talking about. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and He knoweth them that trust in Him. 
Right? Isn't that a blessing? He knows them that trust in Him. Right? It says a book of remembrance is written for them that fear the Lord and thought upon His name. God says, I, I like that so much. I'm going to put your name down in my book. That, you know, I'm going to remember you because you're remembering me, I'm going to remember you. That's the Lord. That's the Lord. Just like He'll repay vengeance, He'll repay righteousness. Amen? Amen. And uh, verse 12, Thus saith the Lord, Though they be quiet, and he's speaking to the enemy there, and likewise many, yet thus shall thee be cut down when he shall pass through. Though I have afflicted thee, I will afflict thee no more. For now will I break his yoke from off thee and will burst thy bonds in sunder. Isn't that a blessing? In the midst of God pronouncing judgment upon Assyria and judgment upon Sennacherib, he told Israel, I'm going to break his bonds from off you. I'm going to free you. You're going to be free. And God says to you, there might be all this affliction and punishment and trial and woe that I'm afflicting on a wicked world and even a corrupt nation, but you're free. You're free. I'm going to take care of you. That's what he's saying now. I'm going to take care of you if you stay close to me. That's, and doesn't the Bible say in 2 Corinthians 1.4 that God comforted us in all our tribulation? Right? Don't have to answer amen. Going through any trouble as of late? Experience any trouble in your life? You know what God says? I got some comfort for you in the midst of trouble. Right? Psalm 91. I will be with him in trouble. And there's verse after verse of that. I wish it weren't so. I wish we could just enjoy that comfort while we're sitting on the beach, you know, drinking lemonade and everything's sweet and butterfly and roses. But in this wicked, broken world, God's comfort is magnified just for this little while that we've got to enjoy this rocky road. But God says, I'm going to comfort you and take you to a place where you'll never have to worry about that stuff ever again. Amen. And here's another thing that's comforting us in tribulation. When you think about the doom of the Gentiles, aren't you glad you're saved? Amen. When you think about what's going to come in probably just the years ahead, I'm not talking like eons away, what's going to come in maybe the years ahead, aren't you glad you're saved? I mean, if you take this book of Nahum and think about God pronouncing this, not just on Nineveh in the past, but Gentiles in the future, and the Gentile kingdoms that populate the world and just throw and thumb their nose at God, oh man, I'm glad I'm saved. Because as much of a mess I might make of things, and much of a failure I might be, and you remind me of that sometimes, I'm only kidding. But you know, much of those, but you know what? I mean, I'm just glad I'm saved. I'm glad I got a Savior that never failed, never quit, never messed up, never dipped the collars, never falters, never loses anyone that came to Him. Him that cometh to me, I will no wise cast out. So that's some comfort in affliction. And number two, Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Second big idea. Second big idea. Oh, boy. When someone's going to go apostate, when someone's resolved himself or herself to just abandon their former convictions, faith, zeal, desire, devotion, whatever. All God can do with an apostate people or an apostate nation is judge them. That's it. 
If you've made up your mind to just walk away from God, walk away from the things of God, fall from your former steadfastness, you know what God's only, only recompense is? Judgment. And sometimes very, very severe. Very severe. The book of Nahum bears that out. Now we know that the end of the church age ends in apostasy. You see, every dispensation ends in judgment. It ends in failure. And the church age, or whatever you want to call this age, the dispensation of the gospel of the grace of God, or the dispensation of the Holy Spirit, or the dispensation of the church, or whatever you want to label this particular time in which God is working, it it ends in failure. And it's a failure of his church. It ends in apostasy. It ends in the church falling away from their steadfastness and God judging. Look at 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. I'll give you three verses about that. Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day, meaning the day of Christ, see the previous verse, shall not come except there come a falling away first. Before the rapture happens, there's going to be a falling away first. And we're living it right now. I got a friend. We got a friend that used to go to our church here and move to South Jersey. She's texting me churches all the time down there. And one after another, I got to be like, no. I feel like Eli picking out houses. No, 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 no. Because I'm like, look at this. I mean, look at that. I'm not trying to be a jerk, but look at this over here. Look at that over there. I mean, it's just, it's hard to even find a place that's halfway decent, you know, halfway sound and not tooting our own horn. We're just living off the trappings of people that handed down the truth to us. But it's, it's hard to like find and even recommend a place to go where you want to go to church. That's why if you're going to move away and not have secured that lighthouse in advance, you're nuts. You are crackerjack nuts. You are just crazy like, you're bat crazy. You just bat something crazy if you're going to move away and not have the lighthouse there for you. Well, I'll find it when you get there. No, you won't. No, you won't. You know it and I know it. We could probably, you could tell stories and you know stories. You've lived stories. You're not going to find it. You're going to get caught up in the house, caught up in the community, caught up in the stuff, and you're going to find a church. You're going to be too busy. And then it's going to be six months later, a year later, two years later, your life's a shipwreck. You're like, I got I to find a church. Yeah, you should have found that first because your priorities were screwed up. All right, there's going to be a falling away first. 1 Timothy 4.1. 1 Timothy 4.1. 1 Timothy 4.1. Now the Spirit, there's the Holy Spirit, capital S, speaketh expressly. You know what that means? That's like your Italian grandmother. That means the hands are going, she's in your face, a little bit of spit hitting you in the eyes, you know, the, it's just, it's, it's emphatic, it's not subtle, it's like in your face, God is saying, hey, in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. He says, there are going to be some people that are going to let the wrong ideas into the church, wrong ideas into their house, wrong ideas into their heart, and they're going to leave what they know is true. And you think it's, well, it's just my opinion. No, it's devils. It's devils just crawling all over your brain and filling your heart with thoughts that you shouldn't be thinking. And you're yielding to them. It says some, I had to read that this morning or this week and say, 
Will you be in that number that departs from the faith? You know what I just want to do? I just want to make it to the rapture clean. Man, there's one thing I could do. I just want to make it to the trumpet sounds. I don't want to falter. I don't want to fail. I don't want to give up. I don't want to quit on God because He never quit on me. I just want with all my might just to make it to the end. Don't you? I don't want to quit on him. And it says, doesn't say everybody's going to depart from the faith. It says some will. That means you've got a choice to be in that number or not. Amen. I don't want to be in that number. In 2 Timothy 4, last verse. <clears throat> For the time will come, and dare I say it already is, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. That time has come, folks. She's she's done arrived. The question is, are you going to listen to the Lord or listen to your lusts? You're going to listen to the Lord and what He says, speaking the truth and love to you. We're going to listen to what's going on behind your, between your ears, going on in your body, going on with the way you think it should be, what you want. That's what a lust is, right? A lust is a want. What you want. You're going to listen to what you want or what God wants. What you say or what God says. It's so stinking simple. We complicate it, but the choice is yours. He says the time's going to come at the end. When people are not going to want to hear what God says, they're going to hear what they want to hear. They're going to go to the counselors that tell them, that tickle their ears and say the things they want to listen to. Nineveh knew better and faced the awful doom of the apostate. Can I say this? America knows better. And she's facing the judgment of God. Why? Because she's known better and she's thumbed her nose at God. That's why. That's why we're less secure. That's why we're less prosperous. That's why we're less free. That's why we're less of everything we used to be. It's not because of Republicans or Democrats. It's not because of, you know, NATO or this O. It's because righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Amen. You hear that, Joe? Right? <laughs> or whoever's sitting in the White House, that's it. Right? We want to comp and that's what we do as Christians. We don't we are been taken away from the simplicity that is in Christ. Obey or not. Listen or not. Take heed or not. But don't make up this whole thing about this. You know, you're either gonna do what God says or you're not. You're gonna try to or you're not. You're gonna take heed or you're not. And I know there's all this stuff in there that sometimes has to get worked out and worked through and worked around and all that stuff. But the question comes down to you're gonna follow me or you're not gonna follow me. Is that simple? Do you know better? Are you foolish enough to tempt God to judge you? I hope you remember that that illustration, that image. That when you know better and you willfully turn away, you might as well just point your chin to the left and say, give me your best shot, God. And that's you watching from home. Don't be stupid. It just wouldn't be smart. 
Don't thumb your nose at God. Don't, don't point your chin away and say, come on, God, give me your best shot, because you can't take it. You can't take it. Be good to repent, slow down, stop and say, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day.